You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sense Podcast. My guest today is Dave Schools. You know him as the basis for widespread panic. He's a record producer, member of the hardworking Americans, and a great guy to boot. Dave, great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing well. You know, in email, you said you wanted to talk about the Beatles documentary, Get Back. So what did you have to say about that? I, you know, <laughs> I could say so much. We don't want to burn all of our time on it, but it's, it's so important. And I watched it all in one fell swoop over Thanksgiving weekend. And I mean, I was just blown away. And I guess the primary thing for someone of my age, I was born in 1964, and I got turned on to the Beatles when I was probably in third or fourth grade, single by single, uh, digging into the past. And I went to see the Let It Be movie at the late night, midnight movie when I was in high school. And I realized that I feel like we've been kind of lied to about the break of the Beatles. The, the editing of the original Let It Be movie uh, created a cultural shift. Uh, you know, the Yoko Ono thing became almost like a, you know, every band has their Yoko Ono. Um, and what I thought was revealed in this Get Back documentary was that it wasn't that way. It wasn't an acrimonious scene during the recording of this. It was a, it just made me so happy because it was a band trying to get back to something that they had left behind a few years earlier, which is playing in front of people. Um and they're trying to work up new material and they're all getting along and yeah, they're testy and there are problems, but it was just amazing to me. I'm like, so this is normal. I mean, I'm in a band. We're not the Beatles, but we pull songs together. We fight like brothers. We uh, strive to get out in front of people. And yeah, there were boring parts and there are parts that were uh, okay. But when they get to that rooftop, that is a band playing and <laughs> freezing cold 
the best they can to people they really can't see because they certainly couldn't see down on the street. They saw people on rooftops as it went on, but it was just glorious and I loved it. And I felt like nearly 50 years of me thinking things went down one way were literally washed away in six hours, seven hours. Well, I agree really with everything you say. The, you know, the fact that you go through seven and a half hours before you get to the rooftop, what astounded me was how great they were on the rooftop, how they, they kicked it up a notch. You know, I've been privileged to be with, you know, world-class skiers. You can ski them every day, but when competition hits, they don't freeze, they get better. And then, you know, Paul twisting the way he did and then the way uh, John Lennon kind of bounces on his feet like a little bit like a frog. It was, wow, really, you know, makes your insides flutter. Yeah, you know, as a, we agree about the power of music, the power to unite people. And there's something about a group of guys playing together on stage or on a roof or in a studio when something magic happens can't be recreated by computers and production. It's a human thing. It's a connection thing. And man, it just traveled across 50 some years of stored film footage. And, you know, the work they did restoring that film and the audio is just, it's fantastic. It was palpable. Um, and, and it's funny because there's a scene where Paul says, this is when we're at our best, when our backs are against the wall. And, and then you can tell that all the years of training in those little nightclubs and those residencies in foreign countries and just being together and, and sort of suffering as a group, um, that never goes away. You know, you might have to like chip away at some stone to get back to it after a few years off the road. But when you find it, it's like a spewing fountainhead. It's amazing. Okay, well, we certainly saw them in depth recording the, what ultimately became the Let It Be album. That begs the question in your band, when you want to make a new record, let's talk about Widespread Panic because you're involved in a lot of different acts, both as a producer and a player. Uh, how do you do it? Does everybody come with songs already written? Do you work it out in the studio like they did? Well, it's it's been, you know, we've been a band almost, well, 35 years we've been a band. And there's an evolution, you know, it, things were different when we started. Um, and we certainly weren't ever the Beatles with our own studio on Savile Row and, you know, the best EMI engineers at our behest, but there's an evolution to where the first time you go into the studio, it's just glorious and you don't know what's happening. And the first time you hear playback on something that you find acceptable, it's shocking and thrilling. Um, and then you get into this thing where we got signed uh, we, you know, we made our first record space Wrangler with our producer, John Keane in his living room of his house, bit by bit, we record a few songs, go out on the road, play some gigs, get some more money to record a few more songs. And we made the space Wrangler record. And then we got signed by Capricorn really quickly. And what happens then is you're in the studio and you're kind of under the gun. Budgets were certainly far inflated back then. Uh, but you want to get it right, but you don't have the experience to know that you have to just chill and be a band. So for a couple of records, it's get it right. And and you, you play a little fast and you make some sacrifices. Uh, luckily, our producer at the time on those early Capricorn records was the great Johnny Sandlin, who had worked with the Allman Brothers and all kinds of Southern rock stalwarts. Um, and that man was a groove detector. And he kind of taught us to slow down and listen for that magic. 
You know, the magic isn't in getting it right, um, a flawless performance. The magic is that thing that happens with a group of guys who can listen and play and respond. Something, an X factor takes over. And so he would make us do take after take and hold us to slowing things down. So then we began to understand what we were trying to capture. Um, And it's elusive and you can burn a lot of time trying to find it. And then later, you know, as the 90s wore on, Pro Tools came in and then all of a sudden there was this, you didn't really have to commit. Drums began to get gridded out. Uh, We were back with our producer, John Keane. And we're like, you know, I remember a a conversation between Mike Hauser and John Keane where we were trying to play to a click track and Mike Hauser stops the take and and he goes, John, I swear this thing's slowing down. (laughs) (laughs) And John Keane, you just hear this kind of like (sighs) click, Mikey, it's a machine. It doesn't slow down or speed up. (laughs) And so, you know, it's just always an evolution, I think. You know, there's what a band can do as a group with the tools of the studio. And then there's trying to keep up with and interface with this incredibly quick modern evolution of these tools. You know, with the digital thing, you don't have to commit. You know, I try to push young bands I work with to commit, to like reach down into themselves and find that thing that's elusive. But so many of them come in and you're like, they sing one chorus and they're like, okay, so yeah, you can just fly that across the rest of the track, right? And I'm like, yeah, but are you going to do that live? And maybe if they're going to be playing the tapes, they don't have to sing it. But most of us, you're going to have to sing it. You know, let's do it. We're here in a nice room with good sound. Let's go ahead and capture the humanity. Well, the humanity is what it makes makes it great. And the imperfections are what give it edge. It's like Velcro. It's got those little hooks. You want to get the loops. But... Okay, let's talk about recent recordings. Do you come with the songs finished, or to what degree are those figured out in the studio? Well, that's that's been a change, too. Uh, in the old days, once we stopped living together in the band house, you know, obviously when we were all living together in the band house, we'd, <laughs> we were hanging out writing music and laughing our asses off all the time. Uh, we were notorious for rehearsing in front of audiences, um, you know, and—, and Okay, wait, wait, slow. What would you consider rehearsing in front of the audience to be? Oh, a gig that we charge money for. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, how would that differ? Let's say I'm on the other side of the stage, okay? The band is playing, you know, the band might be jamming. What would be different between that and what you consider to be a rehearsal? Well, we probably wouldn't stop and laugh in the middle of a, a stage rehearsal, as it were. But, you know, we were jamming and we took chances and and we played a lot of cover songs. And as we wrote new material, we'd kick out the covers that weren't that great or that cool. And and gradually we just ceased to be a cover band. And we kept a lot of the covers that we sort of, I some people would use the word interpreted. I like to sort of self-deprecatingly say we just weren't that good at playing them. <laughs> so we just sort of had our way with them, but we still like a song like low spark, a high heeled boys that is it's ripe for improvisation. You know, as long as you sing the melody, play that counterpoint music, then there are these spaces where you can go wherever you want. And we've always done that with that song. It's probably one of the oldest covers we ever did, but so we'd be living in a band house 
and cobbling these things together and tightening them up on stage in front of people. We took chances. It's where you kind of found the sea legs of a song. We were able to get away with taking chances. Our audience allowed that. And in fact, they expected it. They love the humanity of the band. Um, There's pretty much nothing better than stumbling and catching yourself with grace. And sometimes it happens if you allow that to happen in live music. Um, But then people got married, had kids, bought their own houses. And so when we come to the studio with new material after that point, people came with their own demos uh, in relative states of, of finishedness. Uh, Mike Hauser was a, had a tendency to show up with th- literally three times more songs than anybody else. Um, and he'd just sort of play them and show them to us. He might have recorded them sitting on his back porch with his acoustic guitar. Whereas John Bell, was a, he likes to try his hand at home recording. So he'd play some bass and he'd put a drum machine on it, but he never wanted to steer anyone too far in a certain direction. Uh, Everybody really respected the input of everybody else, whether it was in our living room rehearsing or whether it was with the tape rolling in the studio. Um, And now that we don't play as much on the road and we are scattered all across the country, that sort of bringing a more finished demo into the picture is is far more acceptable but everybody is all about plans can change we can pivot at any time someone drops a brick hey that's actually sounded pretty good maybe that's our middle four that i didn't see coming okay you're in the studio one thing that was kind of both tense and interesting watching get back is the personalities interact at first, you know, Paul's sort of the slave driver. Then John is kind of retiring, and then John becomes more active. George literally quits the band. What about the personalities interacting in the studio? Well, you know, I guess the lesson we all learn the older we get is communication really is key. Um, and also, familiarity breeds contempt. And thirdly, it's like a family dynamic with siblings. So sometimes, Communication is the hardest part. Uh, And sometimes it's hard to break through methods of communication that have sort of solidified over decades. Uh, You know, you can sense that resentment in George, you know, and you can sort of sense the like power dynamic between John and Paul, where at one point he's like, you used to run the band, but I guess now I'm the boss. And Uh, then at the end, (laughs) at the end, you know, he says, now we're the boss again. That's right. Um, and there's also with the end of uh, realizing that the end is actually closer than they might think. And it looks like Paul is crying and it really gets me. And I, I, it's, it can be triggering in a lot of ways to watch something like that with myself having 30 years of history. You know, we are a band of brothers, widespread panic. Um, we've lost two of them. They've passed away and. So whatever communication problems or challenges that John Bell and I might face, uh, we're constantly trying to work through. And there are times where it's more tense. And especially after like taking the, the COVID time off, you know, we, when we reconvened in Athens, Georgia, at the Georgia Theater to rehearse. Um, and, and you've probably noticed this, too, with people stuff kind of comes out sideways in unpredictable ways after being sort of cooped up and subject to pressure 
all the various outside pressures. We were all sort of suffering in solitary. Um, and it got weird with communication. It's palpable, but we've been together for a long time and it's worth working through. But those are things that definitely, they come up in the studio and the studio tends to turn the heat up a little bit. Uh, you know that tape might be rolling or ones and zeros are spinning by. Uh, the lights are on, mics are on. Uh, and no matter how hard you try to lose that awareness, you're always aware that what you say might not land the way you intend it to land. Um, and that can be tough. You know, the, the get back thing, it's, I thought that it was amazing. I literally saw a cameraman maybe three times until they got on the roof. I literally forgot. I, I felt like I was a fly on the wall, you know, and then how did those guys go from, I can understand being in a movie studio like Twickenham is not an ideal place to, to reconvene. Um, but once they got into their home turf, no matter how new it really was for them, they seemed to have just, they forgot those cameras were there. And we're not talking about little digital cameras mounted on a stick hidden away. We're talking about big cameras that need film change, 16 millimeter all the time. Uh, it was amazing to me. Although at the very end, during the credits, when they show the clapper and then you start to you know, realize that the film crew was more intrusive than you thought they were in the beginning of the, uh, of the documentary. But let's go back to being in the studio. You know, we live in a world of compromise. Everything's about business, getting along. But in the movie, especially Paul, he'll really drill re all three of them and say, I want it like this. I want it like this. And you're certainly after George leaves the man and Paul starts acting that way, especially in the third uh, episode, you start to wince and say, hey, this guy's going to react, you know, if you keep pushing him. So as a band member, to what degree can you stand up and say, no, this is the way I need it to be? Or at what point do you say compromise? Because sometimes someone has a different opinion. Other times you just feel like you're pushing them. Yeah, I think, I think that in the case of the Beatles, there was a pretty high bar that they were always trying to, to top. So there, maybe their end goal was a little different, you know, as far as like success and relative value of what they're doing. Uh, would make someone push. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a philosophy. And it, a lot of times it's, it's the way it's delivered. Like for widespread panic, John Bell is a guy that just wants to get his idea into the hands of everybody else. And what everybody else changes about it or provides that's unique to them musically thrills him. Whereas Mike Hauser would... I mean, he told me one time, he's like, hey, when it gets to this part, can you play this B chord instead of what you've been playing? And that's, you know, it depends on the delivery system, uh, the way that communication was asked. Um, a great example, I'll jump to when I was playing with Government Mule and Chuck Lavelle was playing keyboards. And I had known Chuck for a while, super sweet guy, one of the nicest, most uh, genteel people in rock and roll. Um, and we were working up the song compared to what? You know that song? Of course. Eddie Harris, Eddie Harris song with that amazing extrapolated intro. Right. And Chuck wanted to play it and he could certainly could play it, you know? And we had played it a time or two, rehearsed it, and we debuted it the night before. 
And then the next night we were, you know, at some theater somewhere and sound checking and we're kind of running through the intro and Chuck looks at me and he goes, Hey, you know, Dave, when it gets to this part, da da da, I wish you would play this. And I was just like, you know, your wish is my command, <laughs> you know, which is different because you're right. When, you, when Paul starts sort of telling George how to play, the way he's delivering that is making me wince. I'm like, you know, this, this is a powder keg. You could feel it. And certainly with widespread panic, it's been that way. Um, but we're learning as a family. You know, widespread panic, everything was DIY. We were against the grain. We didn't sound like any other Athens band at the time. Uh, you know, we no one really cared about a weirdo band from the South. So we had to learn how to do everything in our own way, including simply how to be a band. And for us, being a band was learning how to play together. You know, you can you can have the way that you play your instrument. You can be great. You can have chops. You can be academically schooled. Um but the worth of a band and the sound of a band comes when four people come together and learn how to play together. And widespread panic, you know, we all just sort of taught ourselves. And then we came together and we taught ourselves as a group. And I think that's why we pretty much instantly had a sound that was unlike anyone else. I look at a band like you too. And if I could be a fly on the wall and hear them rehearsing before they got put into a studio with a producer, I bet it's four guys learning how to make that sound of you two together, probably completely unaware that that's what's happening. You know, that's the sort of thing where I realized it about widespread panic after a few records and looking back and hearing other bands talk about how they crafted their sound or how a producer helped them find their sound. And I was like, huh, I think we just sort of, we just lucked out, you know, we just showed up knowing what we knew and then the unit, the hive mind sort of took care of everything else. Um, and I think that there's an evolution in that. You can see some of it in Get Back. How revelatory is it when Paul sits down and starts strumming that Hofner bass like it's a rhythm guitar and pulling the words to get back out of the atmosphere? It was like alchemy. Although I'm not sure that I believe that's the first time he did it. Well... You know, uh, what was it Phil Walden said to us? Uh, it's all smoke and mirrors, boys. All smoke and mirrors. <laughs> That's for sure. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. So, just talking to you for a minute or two, not only are you very verbal, you're very intelligent. And... What's it like interacting with other musicians? You know, Bob Dylan had that song, Dear Landlord, where he says, each of us has his own special gift, and you know that was meant to be true. And if you don't underestimate me, I won't underestimate you, which I've really used as my mantra since. People have intelligence in different ways. There are people who can barely speak but are unbelievable at their instrument. But what's it like? For you, interacting with musicians, generally speaking, rock music is not a highbrow endeavor. It's not, uh, but it is. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, you nailed me. Uh, verbal is a very nice way of putting it. When I've gotten in trouble working with bands, I think it's because I talk too much. You know, uh, if we're going to string, get back all the way through, I think that there's a lot of great information in the way that not only Glenn Johns is sort of just allowing the band and capturing it, and the way George Martin is just like laying on the floor <laughs> right. reading the newspaper in his suit <laughs> until, you know, the one clip that I love the most is, you know, Glenn's like, okay, so the idea is we're going to just capture a song and, and, and it'll be sort of live. And then George cuts him off. He's like, here's what we'll do. We'll rehearse it and we'll play it. And then he goes into joke mode and he's like, we'll play it again and again and again. We're not going to edit it. Um, I talk too much. It's always been my thing. Um, I don't know if it's intelligence or anxiety or what, but I've learned when working with bands to give the thing the space to happen. Whether it's an artist like Todd Snyder that will come in and just he wants to just kind of spew his ideas. He wants to just throw this haystack uh, I, I called it like a haystack of golden needles, and we're looking for the platinum one in it. Um, why instruct that guy? Well, just enable it. Um, other artists need a little more. What they need is vindication. Uh, Jason, my engineer, we were talking about a, a session we had here at the studio, and the artist came back a week later to throw some keyboards on. And there was no one around to sort of vindicate what he played and he was sort of looking out of the control room through the glass at Jason while he was enabling the recording. Um, you know, is this cool? So some artists want just maybe the eye contact or a little bit of a smile like, yeah, that's great. Um, and others want to be what their hands really held and sort of pulled. They want someone to push them or help them separate all their ideas. Uh, Maybe me being so verbal is me trying to sort through to what's most important. Um, and so for the artist that has a lot of ideas, maybe they need to spew them all and have someone go, hey, that one there, that works. It works for me. Does it work for you? I just, I want to continue to evolve, Bob. And, and I love it when people give me honest feedback uh, because it helps me get better at what it is I'm trying to do. And 
all I'm trying to do is get better. You know, it would be great if I could win a Grammy. It would make my mom happy, you know. But uh, really, when I hear an artist say that they're pleased with what we captured in the studio or that that's it, to me, that that makes me really happy. It's almost as thrilling as what I was saying earlier about hearing my band on the first time on playback in the studio. It's like, wow, (laughs) it's a great feeling. Okay, there's, you know, this mantra that no one can tell a hit. I don't really agree with that, never mind commercially. If you do something phenomenal, you know. Actually, my favorite story on this, so I was talking to Al Cooper, who's telling me the story of recording Sweet Home Alabama. Right. And it was recorded a year before it came out. The first album just came out. I said, Al, did you know it was a hit? And he says, it was Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah. You know? So the question is, do you know when you're locked in and something is transcendent? Yeah, it's uh it's unlike it's not unlike the zone that athletes say they get into. I mean, you're talking to someone that is in a band that sort of specializes in not having hits. We have catchy songs and we have short songs. Um, but really what we're after is the word you just used, is transcendence. It's uh transportation. Was it Jerry Garcia that famously said the Grateful Dead is, isn't in the music business or in the transportation right. business? Uh, that's To me, that's the thing. And so if I was to be interviewed after a concert, like an athlete after a game, I would hope that more times than not, I'd be like, I don't remember what happened. It must have been good. And it wasn't because I was fucked up. You know, it was, it was because I was lost in the moment of, of that transcendent zone. Um, I think me being a huge Led Zeppelin fan and they talk about uh, when they took the PA outside and cranked the mix of dancing days and everybody was dancing on the grass. That's the kind of moment, you know, it's like, whew. when I heard that song, when I was in fourth grade, I, I, it, I couldn't believe it. It was like a trip to another world. Well, the funny thing is no one ever talks about that song from Houses of the Holy. A lot of people think Houses of the Holy is the best album. I don't agree. But they mention all these songs. Dancing Days is the one for me. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, here's a little story about me. I, I went to Vermont in fourth grade for the summer with one of my friends and his older brother and his friend came. And this was the days where even if you're going to uh, Nags Head for a week, you bring the whole hi-fi system and a oh, crate yeah. of LPs. And so there's this whole moving in ritual and everything. And and the older boys would go off and do what they did. And us younger guys, we'd sneak in and they had a stash of National Lampoon magazines, which were hilarious and kind of edgy for us. And then they had this, they had their albums. And I remember Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. I knew Elton John. I had his greatest hits record and I had Beatles records. But I saw that Houses the Holy cover with all those little blonde babies crawling up that apocalyptic landscape what's it the giant's causeway uh and and there's no band name on it there's no information whatsoever i'm like this looks weird let's put it on and my friend's brother's friend's sister had written her name in the top corner of the record in weird calligraphy and her name was lisa holgrave and so i put the record on dancing days comes on Robert Plant sounds like a girl. I'm thinking, 
who is this Lisa Holgrave? They rock. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going to, uh, it was the best product showroom. You're an East Coaster. You might remember this, this place. It was like a catalog place you could go into. Right. They had a record department with some very disinterested clerks. And I came in there with my dad and, you know, my $6 to buy a record. And I walk up and I go, do you guys have that Lisa Holgrave record? <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking to? Who? And I said, you know, it's this weird record with these all little naked blonde girls crawling up this red thing. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my weird story about dancing days. And and I seem to have a uh, weird history of listening to classic records, starting with side two, and it informs the way that I forever hear the record. I, I don't know why I started with side two. The first time I heard Sgt. Pepper's, it was on cassette at a little sleepover party. And uh, for years, I thought Within You, Without You was the first song on Sgt. Pepper's. If <laughs> only it was. Oh, boy, what an amazing piece of music, right? <laughs> so you are upbeat and loquacious. You ever get depressed? You ever get down? Bob, you know, I'm a grew up as an only child of a latchkey kid. So my best friends were books and records. And yeah, I get depressed. I get lonely. I, I grew up thinking, man, if I just had siblings to, to torture me or if my best friend lived a little closer, uh, you know, I could ride my bike and hang out. And so I sat around and, and it's funny because my stasis is solitary. You know, when I need to recharge my well, I need to do it solitarily. But at the same time, my nemesis is being alone, if that makes any sense. Um, so it's sort of a weird push and pull with me. And as you know, like on a tour bus, there's no aloneness. The most alone you can get is to crawl into your bunk, pull the curtain, and hope that the air conditioning stays on. Um, so it's it's funny, and it can be really, really exhausting. But yeah, I get depressed, and, and uh, I got to tell you that Social media exacerbates it for me. I, I look through Instagram and what started as a neat way to see what my family was doing and eating um, and then catch up and keep up with bands that I love, friends that I have in, in bands that are always traveling around. Uh, since they started doing the ads and the AI took over what you saw and it stopped being instant, as in Instagram, I'm like, I'm missing my goddaughter's posts. You know, because the AI doesn't, she doesn't post frequently enough. Whereas, you know, Questlove is, is he's a good poster, posts a lot. And a lot of it's amazing information. But a lot of times now I just get depressed. And, uh, and it's funny, it, it, sometimes it makes me want to give up music. I can't tell you why, but that's my own personal kind of burnout. Wait, wait, wait. Slow down, slow down a little bit. Okay, the feeling of giving uh, giving up music, how much is Instagram? How much is it being overwhelmed by social media? How much of it is feeling powerless? How much is feeling that there's no context? Tell me a little bit more. It's it's all of that. I mean, with the social media thing, I think it's an unintentional comparison syndrome. Um, it's really because everybody's putting their best foot forward. Right. They're showing you the thing they're most proud of. 
very few people get on social media and show you the thing that they're least proud of, or they're not going to post when they're having a bad day. Um, but everything else you said is true. I think with me, it can be burnout. Um, sometimes it's, I'm not doing enough. You know, if I can get into my happy place in the studio and work with somebody, it refills my well. I'll never get tired of it. I might get exhausted at the end of a really long day, but I'll never get tired of it. Um, I do kind of miss the exhaustive touring. I miss six and eight week tours in a, in a nostalgic way. <laughs> Let me put it that way. But uh, for instance, Neil Casal was someone that when I met, when we started the hardworking Americans, we were instant kindred spirits. We're both studio rats. You put us in a control room and we are going to just, it's like a, two kids in a sandbox. We'd have so much fun. And, and we also, he had such great taste. You know, the, the people that he had worked with, the training he got from people like Jim Scott uh, gave him a real great bullshit detector. So we'd have so much fun. And after he left hardworking Americans, we stayed in touch and we always wanted to work together. And we we're always throwing our projects back and forth at each other. And uh, I would tell him, Neil, I'm, I'm burned out. And I don't know if I have anything left to contribute. Uh, and he'd go, don't even think that way, man. The world needs what you have to give. Um, so when he committed suicide, and I read his manifesto, uh, he was talking about a lot of the same things. And I was just kind of pissed. You know, there's those five stages of, of uh, death. Grief. Okay. grief, five stages of grief. Right. <laughs> and uh, so I was angry with him. You know, I was like, how dare you give me these pep talks and, and keep me going when I'm having some self-doubt or, or just burned out and tired? Um, and how dare you do that? Uh, and, and, so I think it's it's important to realize that these are natural feelings. Uh, it's important for me to realize there are natural feelings and that there are people that I can talk to about it. I don't have to sit there and ruminate and fester because my natural stasis is an only child um, whose friends live too far away to like just show up. So it's it's something I'm always learning, and it was. It was really easy to substitute things on the road, start feeling bad or down. You know, there's always the next gig. It's always exciting. Uh, there are certainly substances. I've been down that road. Um, and in the end, it's really just me trying to be honest with myself. But those words of Neil ring in my head. It's like, you can't give up. The world needs what you have to offer. And, uh, whew, Okay, let's just stop there for a second. You recently produced, very recently, just came out, a uh, multi-album tribute to Neil. So can you tell us how that came together? Also, what the expectations might be. I mean, even if someone has no idea who Neil is, it's very, I hate to use the word palatable because it's not, you know, positive enough. But even tribute uh, albums for the best acts tend to be unlistenable. And if it's an act you don't know and you don't know the material, usually, you know, you can't find your entry point. Where well, that is not the case with this project. So tell me about it. Thank you. Uh, and and this is all, believe me, you're, I, I've read you for a long time, as you well know. And, and uh, we don't have the bandwidth to listen to things. We, you know, 
You want me to listen to your record? Send me the best song on it. Um, so I understand that a 41-song tribute record for a relatively unheard of artist is, you know, a daunting task. But basically, the genesis of the project was Neil sadly committed suicide in the fall of 2019. And it wasn't too quickly after that that his longtime friend and manager, Gary Waldman, called me up and, uh, you know, what can we do? And, and I know that I had had 14 demos sitting on my desktop for a few years of Neil. And I was just after him to get in the studio and do them. And Gary's like, well, you know, Neil, he made 13, 12, 14 records in the 90s. And none of them ever got the attention they deserved. So we began to put together this idea for sort of a tribute record. Uh, and we thought we'd maybe make a double record, two LPs, one CD, maybe 18 songs, find some people that Neil worked with, some people who respected Neil. And we began to cobble together an idea. And my contribution to the idea where you say tribute records are unlistenable. And I know that you're probably saying that because you don't know half the artists on it or it's too long or for whatever reason, but I find tribute records to be unlistenable because they're recorded in a very scattershot way. Uh, you know, this artist recorded it at a fancy studio in New York, and this other artist recorded it in his bathroom on his iPhone. And it's there's no continuity across the sonic landscape. Um, people are going to needle drop one song by the artist they know. I was like, well, what if we get a bunch of artists that most people don't know? And what if we bring them all to Jim Scott's studio in Santa Clarita? And what if we provide them bands made up of people that played with Neil? Um, so, for instance, I called up Marcus King and said, how do you feel about doing one of Neil's songs? And here's the plan. Come to Jim Scott's and take your pick. We can put basically Jackson Brown's band behind you, who was Neil's band on his first record, Fade Away Diamond Time. So that's Don Heffington, Bob Glob, and Greg Lease. Or you could have Circles Around the Sun, Neil's band. Or you could have the rhythm section from the Chris Robinson Brotherhood, Neil's other band. Or you could have the Hardworking Americans rhythm section, Neil's other, other, other band. <laughs> and Marcus was like, are you saying that I could basically have any of those groups or any combination of those guys and I could pick any of these songs I want. And I'm like, that's exactly what I'm saying. And he was like, bang, I'm in. And that's basically what happened. Uh, the first artist we had in was Billy Strings and we put him with circles around the sun and he did an amazing version of all the luck in the world. One of a, a very, I mean, boy, what a delivery. Billy is a true national treasure. He really is. He's for real. But him being the first artist and our little experiment working that way was the green flag we needed to, to be like, we can do this. Um, and we didn't have any problem getting people. People actually started blowing us up. Can I participate? I love Neil. Can I do this song? Uh, and we, we, you know, we're like, well, we're at five LPs now. I think, I think this is the headstone we need. Um, we probably could have kept going if it wasn't for COVID. And uh, it's an amazing testament to the artists who are involved that once they got over their fear of COVID, they found their sea legs and they were able to remotely record. And all those tracks came back to Jim where he mixed them. 
So we have that sonic continuity. And what we hope is that someone will drop the needle on the side one, hear Aaron Lee Tastian, and just, you know, listen to the whole thing. It's a daunting task, but uh, really what we're trying to accomplish is to further Neil's musical legacy because it was underserved. And it is fantastic. When you hear Shooter Jennings deliver a song like Maybe California, it's for real. Neil was a songwriting master. Um, there's a lot of songwriting masters. Maybe he'll get his due now. Um, but the main thing is we are, we've started the Neil Casal Music Foundation. And this record is sort of an audio calling card. And what we want to do with that foundation is put musical instruments into the hands of children in high schools where Neil grew up in New Jersey and New York. And we've been able to do that. And then the second thing is to be able to support resources for mental health. Uh, we did a big concert at the Capitol Theater. Uh, it was sort of the genesis of a lot of the songs on the record. And we were able to give a nice sizable donation to Music Cares. Uh, Backline.care started in the wake of Neil's suicide, and they are blowing up. And they're one of the people we want to work with, provide support to. Uh, because in Neil's letter, he talks about feeling like he's existing on the outer rim of the galaxy, looking in at all this exciting world, whether he's traveling the world with Ryan Adams and the Cardinals or, you know, having fun in the studio with the hardworking Americans or Chris Robinson Brotherhood. He felt like an outsider. It's that imposter syndrome, maybe, or some hole in him. And we've all felt that way. You know, a little while ago, I was I was telling you how I felt that way in my own way. And there's a there's a real stigma to reaching out about one's mental health. And we want to sort of dissolve that. We want to destigmatize that and make it okay to talk about the way you feel. It's hard, but that's the point of the record. And thank you for asking. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, let's go back, and it sort of ties in. You, you're talking about being on the road for six or eight weeks. Uh, 
Musicians are notorious for getting hooked on drugs and ODing, and to a great degree, it's the pressure. So you go on, you're a band, you work with a band, mainly Wedgebred Panic, that plays for a long time. Let's just say for the sake of discussion, you play for three hours. There's 21 other hours in the day. Some of that you have to travel. So you finish the gig, let's say 11 o'clock at night, you can't fall asleep at midnight. You're lucky if you can get any sleep by three or four in the morning. Then the sun comes up. You got to do sound check. You're with the same fucking assholes you've been with for 30 years. (laughs) How do you cope? You know, everybody copes in their own way. And partying, for lack of a better term, is is one of the ways. I mean, and I'm only going to speak for myself. Uh, I was an uptight asshole. And in a lot of ways, I still am. But without the siblings to beat up on me in a loving way, I sort of projected what I needed onto my bandmates. Um, and I don't know that anyone can really shoulder that burden. You know, no one's going to take that on uh, in, a, in a good way. And so one of my ways was to just be the guy that was not partying all the time. And it made me really uptight and it, it, I'd get resentful um, and feel like an outsider and one of the ways to sort of break that wall down would be to, you know, smoke some weed. That's a that's a ritual, passing the peace pipe around. Sometimes when things would get dicey in the early days of widespread panic, we would go to this little Mexican joint in Athens called Gus Garcia's. And it was mainly an excuse. To, the Mexican food was a delivery system for things they served at the bar. And uh, we'd have what we call a tequila confessional. And uh, we'd just get drunk and let it all hang out. And we'd get through it. Later, like when you described the, the, the sort of endless daily rotation of being not in a bus. You know, we weren't in a bus until after the success of the first two Horde tours. Um, it was a van and a truck. And before that, it was a car and a van. And before that, it was two cars. So, yeah, it's uh, finish your gig, go pack into a motel room with, you know, if you're lucky, there's two or three people in each room. But then, of course, housekeeping's banging on the door at 8 a.m. And then you got to get up and drive another four hours to get to sound check on time where you hurry up and wait for four hours. There's a lot of time to find other things. And I, I went down that road. I found all kinds of other things. It's never much of a cocaine guy, but I sure liked anything that would remove me from reality. Um you know, psychedelics were a little too intense, although I certainly had my fun with those. But it was the opiates that really, you know, took me away. And and they're insidious. They'll get their hooks in you. And they did get their hooks in me. Be a little bit more specific. Which opiates? Well, heroin. You know, terrible. Okay, a little, little bit slower. Intelligent, <laughs> relatively educated guy. How do you start taking heroin and did you get hooked on heroin? Well, you avoid it like the plague because of, (laughs) you know, it's a rattlesnake. We all know what a rattlesnake does if you pick it up. Um, So avoid it like the plague, but then you start with, uh, what were the little yellow ones, Dilaudid? Little yellow cough pills. Crush them up, snort them, feel good for a little while, get some sleep. Uh, And then later, you know, you play someplace I don't know, a port town like Charleston, South Carolina, or 
Baltimore and someone shows up with some little wax packets, some white powder in it, do a little Hoover. I remember the first time I did it, I'm like, this is great. I don't feel like I want to do anymore. I remember thinking that. And then uh, I got in my own way later with a broken heart and found a connection and went pretty deep. I went pretty deep for a couple of years. I would never shoot it. I'd always snort it. Sometimes I'd smoke it. But it, it got really bad, you know, and it was, uh, it was a point of concern. There was an intervention or two. And uh, finally, you know, being the kind of guy that I am, a loner, uh, my moment of clarity was just like, I don't want to be a slave to something else. That really pissed me off when I realized that it happened. So I sought help. And I, I went out to Anaheim, California and, and got help. And then, of course, I left rehab against medical advice and went right out onto Widespread Panic Tour the summer of 2000. And uh, the first thing they did was, hey, you may or may not remember this, but the uh, we have a documentary film crew that's going to be up our asses the whole whole tour. So enjoy your sobriety with that going on. And did you stay sober? And what do you do I did. now? And what, I, yeah. What do you uh, imbibe, if anything, now? If anything now... Uh, I like a good bourbon. I live out here in wine country. Sometimes I drink a glass or two of wine and it tastes like the way the earth smells on a dewy morning. It's really nice, but alcohol was never my problem. Um, like I said, wanting to just be at peace and separate from all the falderall and the feelings was my problem. Um, I like microdosing psilocybin. That really, really helps. I'm a, I'm a very positive guy about that. Um, it's not for everybody, but I've found that it helps with the depression and it helps with when life comes at you really hard, like it sometimes does. Uh, I feel like I'm prepared to deal with it. It's kind of like surfing. It's like, well, this isn't going to go away. You know, like the fact that my homeowner's insurance company just canceled, like they're canceling so many people out here, non-renewing because of the fires. Um, you know, me like being pissed off about it, like I usually would, is it going to help me get reinsured? Um, so I find the microdosing helps with that. Okay, let's go. Microdosing is a big thing in the news right now. Michael Chabin's wife is really into it. She wrote a lot about it. Are you doing this under the auspices of an MD or are you talking about someone has mushrooms and you're just taking a little bit? Uh, well, it's it's measured doses of ground up mushrooms and gel caps. I mean, I am out here in Grateful Dead territory and there are psychonauts out here. Um, and I, you know, I don't feel like I'm gambling. I stopped taking LSD and I stopped the big trip thing way back in the early eighties. I felt like the key had stripped that lock and I had learned everything I needed to learn. Um, so I stopped for a really long time. And of course, after I got sober, you know, no, 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 not going to go there was very uptight about it. Um, but lately, I feel good. And I love where I live. And I love what I'm doing. And uh, it's very helpful. What about ayahuasca? Have you done ayahuasca? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a funny story. Back in the way early 90s, maybe the, even the late 80s, we used to play this place called the uh, Bayou club in washington dc it was you could see the watergate hotel right down the canal it was under one of the elevated highways 
And this dude showed up with a bag of what looked like grape nuts. And he's like, it's ayahuasca root, man. You guys should split this up and play your gig tonight. And we're like, you know, we're not that crazy. Uh, So we played the gig and then we went back to the room and and took a tiny little bit of it. And uh, we called it the root. And one little grape nut piece or two got the desired effect. I remember thinking, that motherfucker, he just wanted to like, drop a match into a pile of leaves and sit back and watch what happened when his favorite band caught on fire. Um, But that bag lasted the whole tour. And then we had a Halloween party in Athens, played a gig and, and uh, everybody at the party did the ayahuasca and it was pretty fun. But yeah, I've never done any shamanic experiences like that. Okay. You said, said a few minutes ago, you're an uptight asshole. Go a little deeper there. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> um, you know, I think it's it's just. Do you want me to go deeper in respect yes. to yes. how the yes. how the psychedelics have helped me overcome this? Yes, because people that I work with have said you've changed. What happened? And and it really it took the uptight asshole away because I guess that I would just. I'd get triggered and my guard would go up almost instantly about anything. It took me a long time and a lot of therapy to uh, sort of realize that I was the one that painted the target on my back all those years, that other people weren't just shooting arrows at me. I put a target there with my behavior. In fact, I went to see a shrink who helped me get over a lot of this stuff. And the first appointment was three hours. And I took up almost three hours unspooling the tape of my life story about how I'd been done wrong and was so alone and boo hoo hoo and everybody's against me. And she very calmly listened and nodded and took notes. And then at the very end, I finally ran out of steam. And uh, I said, uh, I guess that's it, you know? And she just looks at me and she goes, and what part did you play in all of this? Our time is up. I'll see you next week. <laughs> and off I went going, Well, she just, you know, and it took me a long time to realize that I was creating all those problems. You know, for me, life doesn't have any ill will. The ill will is like how I respond to things in life. And I've tried to apply that lesson to everything I do now. You know, this band that I'm producing, they're not against me. You know, this is like I'm having a hard time rising to the challenge that they've presented. Um, so I try to find a positive way to work through it, but that's a big lesson overcoming the uptight asshole and realizing that I'm perceived as an uptight asshole. And that's my reality because of the way I respond in any given situation. It's a tough lesson to learn. How many people in the music industry actually get to learn that lesson for real? Okay. Microdosing. How often would you dose and what would inspire you to take a dose? Well, it's it's more like a routine. I started with like 0.2 gram, you know, barely perceptible. And uh, do it like five days, take two days off and work my way up to it's, you know, it's generally like a third of a gram when I do it. And I don't even really feel it. I, I know that I did it, 
I'm not seeing colors out of the corners of my eyes. I'm not hearing voices whispering. Uh, the walls aren't breathing. Well, let's just assume there's no supply and you don't have it for a month. Are you what? What kind of uh, internal situation are you going to be in? I'm going to be just fine, you know, because I, I've learned what I've learned now from it, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary. I think, like it's surfing, you know, you go out to surf, and some days you just don't catch any waves. Wait, and, so, are you a surfer? No, I'm not, but I love the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just spent six months working with a band with that are all surfers from Ventura. So <laughs> using surfing metaphors. <laughs> That's uh you can thank Farmer Dave and the Wizards of the West. But no, I'm not a surfer. I was a skateboarder. Okay, let's go back. You know, one of the first things you ever told me when we met backstage at the Orpheum was that you were adopted and you were meeting blood relatives. What went on there, and to what degree do you think that's affected your life? Wow. I mean, got another hour. Uh, it was, it's a big deal because, like I said, so much of what formed me was being that lonely kid, no siblings. And the first thing that happened around 1992 was uh, we were playing, we'd been on tour with Blues Traveler, and we finished the tour at the Roseland in New York City. And we opened up for Blues Traveler and looking at the room, the ballroom was filled with people in costumes, but there was this older woman and a too young to be there boy standing in the crowd. They stuck out to me like a sore thumb. And I even met them on the street afterwards and signed like a, you know, a poster or something and finished the tour. And I got home and there was this big, thick letter amongst my stack of mail, handwritten. And I kind of just knew I opened it up and this picture fell out and it was that woman, that boy and uh, a young female. And I just knew I'm like, this is my birth mother. Uh, and so I read the letter and that's exactly what happened. And she detailed the way it worked. And I let her into my life. She probably broke some laws reaching out like that. And I had never wanted to find out who they were. I was perfectly happy. My adopted parents, the Schoolses, Bill and Fran, did an amazing job raising me. Uh, but now my interest was piqued. And so I led her into my life and found out I had a half-sister and a half-brother. And that was amazing. And it was just, it was thrilling. Uh, but the one thing that was incomplete was, where's the dad? Where's the father? And uh, hemmed and hawed. And, and I, I was finally like, after a year of asking, you know, she'd be like, oh, I lost touch with him and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, finally I said, look, I can't go halfway. If I'm going to, this is a sweeping life change for me. You can't just come in and be in my life and not help me find my father. So she finally produced an address and I wrote a, a letter and a couple of weeks later, I got a letter back and it was from my father. And of course you've met him, you've seen him. And, uh, he's like, imagine my surprise upon opening your letter on father's day Ooh. of all days. <laughs> 
So uh, it came to pass that Widespread Panic was playing at the Ritz in L.A. Was it the Ritz? I think it's the Ritz, right? The Ritz the is in New York. Roxy. The Roxy. Roxy. Played the Roxy, and that was my time to meet my dad. And he showed up after sound check, and he had two little kids with him, which was another half-brother and half-sister. But the amazing thing about him meeting my dad was finding out that he'd been in the music business forever and ever and ever. Ever and ever and ever. And uh, so the funny thing was, my birth mother was basically raised by her uncle, Johnny Mercer, in Savannah, Georgia. And who worked with my girlfriend's father. <laughs> and <laughs> we have we have a lot of connections, don't right. we? <laughs> the the world does draw smarter, smaller and smaller. Uh, but my dad, you know, he grew up in Savannah, Georgia. He was born in England. He his first memories of music are Spike Jones Orchestra being played during blitzes to like help alleviate the fact that bombs are dropping on your city. And then came to live with an uncle. And Johnny Mercer would pick him up and hold him up so he could look through the windows of the Baptist church while the choir sang. And he remembers jukebox split into race sides and white sides, you know. And uh, he he got my mom pregnant right when he decided to move to Detroit to start to produce records. And so all the hemming and hawing between them and between my birth mother and myself was simply about not selling him out. She wanted me to have a fair shot of meeting him. And they were afraid that if he said, I can't raise a son, I just moved to Detroit. I'm sleeping on a sofa um, that I would hold that against him. And I really don't because giving me up for adoption was probably the best thing that happened to me at that time. And then later as a traveling musician, finding out that, it's in your blood is a real vindication, you know? And I remember that show at the Roxy. I was playing like a madman. I wanted to impress my old man with his musical tastes. And he gives me a, he goes, you play too many goddamn notes, but don't <laughs> worry. Don't worry. I'm going to send you something to take care of it. And so when I got back to Athens, after we first met, he had sent me that James Jameson book um, that had all the great people like McCartney and Sting talking about Jameson and it had a cassette that you could plug in. And if you move the speaker balance all the way to the right, you'd hear Jameson's bass line juxtaposed against the famous song. If you move the speaker all the way to the left, you know, you'd hear Sting's bass line, his interpretation. And that was just, that was great. You know, my dad's got no filters and uh, I love him for that. And he wound up running a studio and starting a publishing company. He published that song, The Rose. Um, and he loves playing music. I stumbled in on him playing a song one time when I was visiting and it was a song called honky red by this artist named Murray McLaughlin that he had worked with publishing wise. And I said, what is that song? And he told me what it was. And I'm like, is it okay if widespread panic records it? And he's like, please do. And so we recorded it and put it on our record called street dogs. Um, he's an invaluable resource. And he's seen it all because he mixed live sound for Scott Richardson Case, opening for Led Zeppelin and the Grateful Dead and 
you know, had a horn band called Rastus that was like competitive with Blood, Sweat and Tears in Chicago and the horn band realm. And then he came out to L.A. in the early 70s and worked with Zevon, um, you know, mixed for Bobby Womack, all kinds of cool stuff. And what a beautiful gift. What a resource. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, I have to ask you, this late date, A, when did you find out, how old were you when you found out you were adopted and what did you think of that? And now with this long extended family, your people who raised you, the birth parents, et cetera, how does it all fit together? Uh, I guess I was probably... When I talked to my adopted mom, I'll call her Fran Schools, uh, I, I f- feel like I was probably three or four when I was told I was adopted. And I, she kind of refutes this, but I'm not sure how great her memory might be about it. Um, but I remember a book, you know, I was a really, really early reader. Um, and like I said, books and records were my best friends growing up. But it was a book that was written for a very young child to explain adoption and that I was loved and blah, blah, blah. And so I took it in stride. You know, in my memory, I never harbored any fantasies that, oh, you know, there was a princess somewhere that had to give me up and it was all wrong. And if I could just find her, my life would be better. My life was fine. Um, I got everything I needed. I was provided for. I was allowed to experiment. I was given music lessons, bass lessons, piano lessons. I went to a private school from kindergarten until I went to college at the University of Georgia. I was provided for. I never cared or really wanted to meet my real parents. But like I said, once my mom got in touch with me, then the the, the can of worms was open. And I, I just had to go whole hog. And so suddenly I have four half siblings at the age of 27. And I got this extended family. When I got married to my wife, we're like, how are we going to do this wedding thing? You know, it's, I got 
adopted parents who are divorced and they can't sit together. And I got, you know, this Savannah side of my birth family and the Los Angeles side of my biological family. And, and uh, we wound up just having a private little affair. But when you ask what it's like, it's both wonderful and terrifying because so many things that I had always wanted, siblings, uh, a family, a larger family, um, I suddenly had. But suddenly having something like that is, it's intense, you know, it's, I'd get calls for cousins I had never met. Hey, we want to come see you play at Red Rocks. And I'm like, okay, I really want to come see you work at Morgan Stanley, you know, but I'm working. I, I, I don't have no time to meet you and, and I don't have the bandwidth. And that was difficult. And I've talked to a lot of people who have had so many varying experiences when they find their birth parents. Uh, from like literally the, I found my birth mother and she's still married to my birth father. And I have two full siblings. The reason they gave me up was because they were in high school. I know a story like that pretty well. Isn't that a, do you have what? Is that your story? No, it is not my story, <laughs> but friends. And now everybody gets along and the people are accomplished, you know, at this point, you know, it's all inherently strange because it all happened when this person was an adult that she ultimately found her birth mother. But that it's just you resonate. Obviously, everyone's got a different story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, but it was it was a long balancing act, you know, and I've gotten it down to where I'm comfortable. My my biological mother has sadly passed away, um, but I'm very close with her husband who uh, famously said the night that she confessed that there was a child that he did not know about. And he said, uh, he got any more, got any more <laughs> secrets you want to share with me? <laughs> uh, and, and I, you know, my, my, my biological father, like I said, we're just, we're, we're kind of very the same. I believe that, you know, he was living in Van Nuys at that time. And I went back to his house uh, after that show at the Roxy, I was talking about, and I hadn't met his wife, and we were in his sort of man cave stereo room and just laughing our asses off about something. And she had come in, and the first thing she said was, I couldn't tell whose laugh was whose. Um, we have a very different speaking voice. He's got a real wonderful baritone voice. He should, he should do narration and loop work or something. But uh, yeah, we're both cynical. We're both crusty. Uh, I hope that I can be as crusty and cynical and full of love and joy as he is when I'm his age. And, you know, he, he, I met you with Chip Hooper, right. but I do believe that it was my father that said, you got to read this email blast. Wow. And this was like, you know, Windows 95 era. When did you start the letter? Well, I started in 86. It didn't become an email blast till the year 2000, but Okay. Yeah. I mean, so this has been a long time and, and he's been around. I think you've probably met him a time or two backstage, but uh, uh, incredible. I mean, just it, like I said, it's a balancing act. Uh, we all know, especially since we're in to the thick of the holiday spirit, as it were right now, how difficult that can be. And, you know, just like sort of the things we were talking about with widespread panic and with the Beatles, the sort of sibling thing and the dynamic that, exists across decades um we're in the thick of it and so all that stuff gets multiplied 
when I let my biological mother and father and their children and their extent, their extended families, uh, you know, my father had the same experience. My mother had the same experience. They were both sort of raised by different people. You know, my father's father was pushed out of the family during World War II. He wasn't good enough for the daughter. So he was sent to like France or Germany to fight. And so my dad was raised by his mother in a foreign country. And there are British relatives and Irish relatives that are close enough to be someone you might want to see during the holidays. But it's just sometimes it's all too much. I love meeting them. But like I said, my stasis is solitude. That's kind of, you know, when I go back to the egg to recharge, I, I'm by myself. And, you know, my wife puts up with it. She's wonderful in that respect. She gets it. You know, if I come home from tour, she knows I need a few days to sort of put myself back together. And uh, that's when I'm really happy that there's a seven and a half hour documentary that I can watch. Okay. So when and how did you meet your wife? Did you partake of the uh, goodies on the road before meeting her? What keeps you together? And how about the issue of children? Well, I met my wife in L.A., my half-sister Robin, the daughter of my birth father, was dating my wife's little brother. And she said, you got to meet Andrea. And so she brought her to a show at the Wiltern. And uh, we went to Musso and Frank and had lunch the next day. And I was just, I remember sitting down beside her. She was the first one there. And she's like, you might want to sit on the other side because I'm left-handed. We might bump elbows. And I said, eh. I like it right here. If, if, if your elbow gets in the way, I'll rip your arm off and beat you with it. And she laughed. And so we forged a relationship that's based on comedy and humor. Uh, like we'd run our favorite Mr. Show routines. If you remember Mr. Show of with course. Bob and David, just groundbreaking and <laughs> wonderful, wonderful work. And uh, we'd laugh and laugh and laugh. And we courted in a very strange way because I met her. Like I said, it was set up. My little sister set it up. And I was keeping a blog. Do you remember MySpace? Of course. I had been under the behest of one of the office people at Widespread Panic headquarters. Like, you're a pretty good writer. Why don't you keep a blog during the summer tour? And we'll put it up on our MySpace account. And uh, so I did. And that's what I was doing. And I wrote about the experiences we had in L.A. And and I said, and had lunch with my sister's adorable friend. And we had moved on up the West Coast, you know, on tour. And I kept calling my sister going, did Andrea say anything? What'd she say about me? What'd she say about me? And I was getting crickets. I was like, oh, this is not good. I thought I was, I thought I, I thought we hit it off, you know? And, and finally I get an email from the office guy at Brown Cat, widespread panic headquarters. He's like, I wouldn't normally share these types of things with you, but I think you might be interested in this one. And I opened it up and it was from Andrea. And the first line was, oh, so you think I'm adorable, eh? <laughs> so we began correspondence. I mean, we're talking courtship here, wooing. And so it was emails back and forth. And by the time the band got down to down from the, the hook, down through the Rockies, down to Texas, we were having phone calls. And then I got home to Georgia and the phone calls were longer and longer across time zones. And then I'm like, well, you know, we got these uh, 
three nights we're doing at Radio City Music Hall. Wink, wink. Why don't you come out and uh, come see some Panic shows? And it was also Jimmy Herring's first shows with Widespread Panic. And uh, we had rehearsed our asses off, so we weren't rehearsing all day before the shows. I had days. So she came out, and she'd never really been to New York before. And we just, we had a great time. We stayed. We walked to the shows, get the van back, eat some dinner, hang out, have a great time. And we never really did anything New Yorkish. And uh, it was time to take her back to the airport. And I had a day off. So I was like, ah, we didn't do a carriage ride. We didn't do anything romantic. We didn't go to Barney's or the Russian Tea Room or, you know, anything like that. I'm like, I got it. I get in a yellow New York taxi cab and I tell the guy, man, you got to burn to LaGuardia because she is late. She's going to miss her flight. So the guy put on the classic New York City cab ride, you know, honking at pedestrians, gunning his engine. It was thrilling. It was great. And it, and I was, uh, it was the end of the long sell for me because that was it. And you talk about kids and neither of us really wanted them. You know, it's like I'm a child of divorce. She's estranged from her parents. We just want to have fun together. And so that's what we do. Um, and I am not evading your question about the fruit of the road, as it were. Um, you know, I might be an uptight asshole who's working on it, but I'm also a silly old romantic. And I just, oh, I'm, you know, my wife says, you and your dad and your, your, your dad's kids, you all love love. And I'm like, I don't know that we're in love with the concept of love. I think that we're just, we're romantics. We like that feeling better than the other feeling of lust. I'm not saying I refute the feeling of lust. And I'm not saying I have not acted upon the feeling of lust. But I, you know, I want a partner. I want someone that I can run through silly comedy sketches with. I want someone that's going to like, have joke wedding vows to a certain degree. Um, so yes, that low hanging fruit was available and it was weird to me. And, uh, and I think things worked out the way they did. I had great relationships that evolved and it was time to move on. And I had certainly have had fucked up great relationships and not fucked up great relationships, but We've been married for 13 years now, and we've been through a lot, and it's worth it. You know, it's worth working through it, um, and it's, I can't say that it's easy. You were married once, weren't you? Of course I was. We could tell my story off, not that I wouldn't, but it will take up a lot of time. Why do you live in Northern California? I fell in love with classic rock. You know, I I did not get to be in San Francisco when it was cooking in the late 60s, but I loved all those bands. I saw the Grateful Dead a lot when I was in high school and college, early 80s. Um, I was blown away with what they were doing, and I was blown away with the spirit, but as close as I got to that was, you know, when I could go see a Woodstock at the Midnight Movie, which is way too long of a movie for a Midnight Movie, by the way. <laughs> You know, it was on it was on cable and I got the triple record and these were the artists doing what they did on film. You know, MTV was different. I liked some of the music. I loved New Wave. I loved punk. I got it. Um, 
But, you know, when I decided what I wanted to do was when I saw Jimmy Page working in his pajamas. It's like that guy goes to work in black silk pajamas. And that is a cool job. And then when I saw John Entwistle, I'm like, that's the bass player that I want to, I like that guy's style. So when Panic first, I, I actually, I'll backtrack. I came to see a Grateful Dead concert, New Year's Eve in Oakland. I went with a girlfriend of mine who had met the people, the, the grandson of, or the son of the folks that live in 710 Ashbury, the Grateful Dead house. We got to stay there because of that connection. She had gone, done a summer class at Berkeley, met this guy, CJ, and they graciously allowed us to stay at the house. Um, and I fell in love with San Francisco. And this was the San Francisco of like 1984, 85. Hate Street was still, ooh, man. Um, and then when Widespread Panic started playing out here, you know, we, we didn't just start at the Warfield. We, uh, we played, I think it was called the Full Moon Saloon or the Moon Saloon or something like that. It was on Hate Street um, and other little places. And it just, I, I always wanted to be here. And then for a brief time in like 97, I dated a girl and we lived in the sunset part of San Francisco. And then when I met Andrea, she was going to school in San Luis Obispo. And I was like, I'm ready to, to move, you know, are you willing to, to come up to the Bay Area? So we just started looking for properties. We found a real estate agent. We were looking in North Marin and, and we kept drifting up towards Sonoma, uh, Sebastopol is the town where I live. And one day the real estate agent goes, why are you so interested in, in this area, West Sonoma County? Uh, it's got a real yeehaw factor, don't you think? And I said, what do you mean by yeehaw factor? And he said, oh, well, I just mean, you know, you see pickup trucks on cinder blocks and people's yards and satellite dishes and stuff. And I'm like, motherfucker, I've lived in Georgia for 25 years. I feel right at home here. And so, you know, she's sort of a city mouse. She grew up in Woodland Hills and then, you know, went to Santa Cruz and then wound up finishing in slow and working there. Um, so it took her a little getting used to because it's way colder and rainier up here. But, uh, man, we love it. I love it up here. I feel right at home. I've, I've got a great life. And uh, so, yeah, not San Francisco. Kind of glad I don't live in there. I, I feel like I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. A medium-sized city on the East Coast. I lived in Athens, Georgia for 25 years. That's a big college town on the East Coast. And now I live between a town of 7,000 and a town of 200. And if I ever move from here, it's probably not going to even have a post office where I wind up. Okay, you mentioned Athens. For those of us who grew up in the Northeast, our real first exposure to Athens was REM. And we hear about the whole scene, et cetera. You know, certainly growing up in the Northeast like myself, you really don't know that much about the South. Although I did uh, live with a woman romantically from Tallahassee, which is really more Georgia than Florida. But what was going on in Athens? Explain it to me. Man, Athens is uh, the best description. And I can't say that I coined this, but I don't know who did. Mayberry on acid. Uh, you know, I went to college there. I love the B-52s. That was the first Athens band that I heard. and um, But I went to college there because, A, I could get early acceptance. 
so I could be like done with that whole college thing. And, and remember, I went to a, a prep school called Collegiate that was a 13-year prep school in Richmond. So by Thanksgiving of my senior year, I had been accepted at the University of Georgia. I knew that they had a a music scene, but I think what was more important to me at the time was Playboy magazine had named them the top party college in the country. <laughs> and I had gone down there. Uh, my best friend's dad was like an alumni rep. So he dragged us down there to see Herschel Walker play football and uh, a visitation weekend. And there's a place called Legion Field where on campus they'd have the, the big outdoor concerts. And I saw the psychedelic furs. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And um, so there I was, fall of 83, moving into a dorm, and things were cooking. Uh, The guy across the hall was listening to WUOG, the college station, and the band Love Tractor was on there talking about their new record. And I'm like, that is some alien-sounding cool music. Of course, Chronic Town had just dropped the famous REM EP. Uh, Bands were cooking. There weren't that many liquor licenses downtown. There was a couple of places to play. Uh, a place called Tyrone's you couldn't get to unless you had a car. And then there was the infamous 40-watt club. And REM was cooking. In fact, Athens is so hip that REM hadn't even put out their second record yet. And the hipsters in Athens were writing them off as too popular to be cool. That's how cool Athens was. And it was a miasma of styles. There was the thrift store hipsters, uh, people that like literally sewed their own clothing. There's the weirdo punk rockers, the straight edge guys. And uh, what a great place. What a great place. Everybody was in a band. Everybody was in three bands. And it was time to have a job. You got a job at a place like the Euro Rap, um, doing shawarma or the taco stand, rolling burritos. And your boss knew that you were an artist or you were in a band. And so, yeah, take two weeks, go off and lose your ass playing, playing your music. Your job will be waiting when you come back, you know, and I was lucky enough to stumble into work in the door at a place called the Uptown Lounge um, where I saw Black Flag. I saw Camper Van Beethoven. I saw, you know, any number of bands that would go on to become stalwarts of the alternative, the Lollapalooza scene. Chili Peppers, Meat Puppets, you name it. And man, that talk about something where you don't realize you're in the midst of something that's cooking, but then you do, and then it explodes. That's kind of what happened. And so Athens to me was this strange little Mayberry on acid kind of town. And and it always will be. It always is, no matter how homogenized they try to make it uh there's an independent coffee shop that exists right next door to a starbucks you know there's enough support because you've got the kids from the college that'll go to starbucks and then you got the townies and the the weirdo kids from the college that'll go to espresso royale or whatever it's called um and i i really i miss it and i'm glad that we go back there to have business meetings and we go back there to rehearse and so forth it's it's a very resetting kind of town. A lot of people don't ever leave, and it's it's very easy to see why. Here's a little interesting story about Athens. In the uh, 2004 election, you know, George Bush was going for his second term, and uh, 
and he won. We all know that. We all know what happens. The Athens Banner Herald that morning, you know, Georgia has its counties. It's a lot of counties. And on the Athens Banner Herald that morning, it said Democrats sweep Clark County. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a picture of the state of Georgia and it is red entirely. All these hundred, a hundred and some counties. This one little blue dot, Athens, Clark County. Democrats sweep Clark County. That, to me, sums up the attitude in Athens, Georgia. Okay, let's jump to today. You work on a lot of records, but needless to say, in the 30-odd years you've been in this game, the landscape has completely changed. You know, it used to be there were very few bands. It cost money to make records. Distribution was a big uh, bottleneck. You wanted to have widespread acceptance. What's it like making a record today? Why even make a record? You know, that is a question that I ask a young band that I'm working with. And I agree with a lot of what you write, a lot of it. Um, And sometimes I disagree, but this one I really agree on. Uh, You make an LP, it's a vanity project, you know, or it's just because of what you do. Widespread Panic has always made LPs. That's just what we do. And we've done it independently. There have been budgets from labels. Uh, We were one of the first bands to go with Sanctuary Records in the late 90s. And so we had a 50-50 deal um, because we made all of our money selling tickets. And so, sure, we'll pay for 50% of the recording budget and we'll up what we get on the end. And that's great. But for a young band in this landscape where all they're going to make money off of is selling tickets and merchandise, do you really have in your coffers enough money to record 10 or 12 songs? And then if you're going to make money off of it, you're not selling CDs. And you're not going to get paid unless you really go viral on TikTok or a stream. You're not going to get paid that way. So how are you going to afford to press and make vinyl? Because that is one way that if you can afford to do it, you can sell it at your shows. You can make some money on it. Why do you want to do that? So I ask them, why wouldn't, wouldn't you rather just like take your two best songs you're most confident in and record them really, really well, make the, use these tools of the studio and, and let's just leverage what you got into an amazing recording, you know, press a seven inch. You can sell that. People will love that. They'll, they'll buy LPs and seven inches, even if they don't have a turntable because, uh, you can sign it and they can put it on their mantle. Other people will listen to it. That's great. But, uh, and I encounter it. And a lot of a lot of the younger bands get it. They get that it's gone back to, it's gone back to the kind of world that we grew up in. You know, I'd go to a standard drugstore and they had a wall of the top 40 singles there. And my dad would give me a buck and I'd buy whichever one I wanted. Deep Purple, Creed is Clear Order Revival. And uh, then we got into the LP world. And it was a good world for a little while. But we had gatekeepers. Um, we had radio stations, some local. Then the radio stations went national. Heard the same 28 songs every freaking day until you were tired of it. And then you heard it some more. But I don't understand why a young band would want to record anything more than a song or two in this day and age right now. Unless they're so incredibly confident and have such amazing material that it's going to go deep. But is it going to go deep, Bob? 
No, it's not. But uh, going a little deeper on this topic, how good a studio do you have and how much does it cost someone to make a record to come in to work with you? Well, I mean, I'm in a really great place. Um, we're at a studio right here. I'm talking to you from my studio and my engineer, Jason. It's We call it Space Camp. It used to belong to Kitaro, the new age artist. He built it by hand and we took over after he left. Um, we got a 36 channel Studer console in here, all kinds of great synths and instruments and a, a engineer that knows how to work them and record them. Um, so, you know, we work with people we want to work with here. If you want me to produce your record and you have a studio in mind, I'll come and we'll talk about what it costs. I really, when I say I'm in a great position, it means that I can pick and choose. This isn't what I want to do for a living. It's what I love. I love the studio. I love working with artists. It's my happy place. Making the Neil Casal record with Jim Scott, the 18 songs we were able to do down in Santa Clarita at Pliers, his home studio, some of the happiest times of my life. I'm working with all kinds of different artists. I'm meeting and working with heroes. You know, I mean, to sit around and talk bass with Bobby Glob, come on. To get to play bass with Don Heffington, God rest his soul, give me a break. You know, to bring someone like Tim Heidecker and have Jim Scott, you know, recording and have a handpicked band supporting Tim is wonderful. It's the best thing in the world. I don't need to get paid. Doesn't mean I'm not, you know, it doesn't mean I'm going to work for free, but I don't get, I don't want to get paid. We can work something out on the back end if there ever is a back end. And I don't think there's ever going to be a back end (laughs) (laughs) ever again, really, you know, but Jason and I, we're here and we work on stuff that we love. How far is it from your house? Three miles. Oh, far. (laughs) Three miles. And uh, Where, where did Kataro go? Why did he sell it? Uh, well, he had a divorce, uh, and he, he went back to Japan, to his homeland, and then he got snagged there by COVID when they're uh, sort of, they had pretty severe protocol. He kind of got trapped there, couldn't leave. Um, but here we are at Space Camp, and I'm talking to you from Space Camp, and you can see this old ARP synthesizer right behind me. And what, a 2600? Yeah. <laughs> I actually worked on that in my college days. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we have, we love old stuff. Jason is a circuit bender, uh, built pedals, worked Ableton live with uh, Steve Kimmock and also teched his guitars and his amps. So, um, you know, here we are making music. Uh, I'm ready to make another record for my own twisted devices and, uh, you know, no commercial potential, no hope at all. Just, uh, have some fun and make some music for me. It's been like 20 years since I did that. And uh, maybe it's a soundtrack to a movie that hadn't been made yet. I don't know. Don't really care. I'm about being happy, you know. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, let's talk finances. You're in a band with multiple members. You know, whatever publishing is, is there's not that much and it's split, etc. How are you doing financially? Uh, I'm really good. You know, Widespread Panic has been a band that can sell tickets for 30 years. Um there's been eras where we're in the top 10 concert grossing attractions in Billboard. Uh, now we're to a point where we play maybe 35 shows a year. And we go and we do three, three night runs, four night runs in cities we love. And we get to play our catalog and we play our music and our fans come in and they have a great time. And everybody's happy. Everybody's happier than they've been in a long time because we worked our asses off. Bob, you know, we, we, there were years where we did 250 shows and then there was a long stretch where we did 80, a hundred shows. And that was the best part of our career was being, you know, three tour buses, three semi trucks, having a modular system where we'd go play a shed somewhere that we could easily downsize to play an arena or downsize to play a theater. And I got to tell you, I love these theaters. We place places like the beacon, the Orpheum, the Riverside in Milwaukee. We just got done with a run at the Chicago Theater. It's it's fantastic. Um, you know, I remember we played two nights at Madison Square Garden for Halloween in the year, maybe 2004 or five. I can't remember. But uh, to walk out on that stage and literally be on the X where Jimmy Page was standing approximately, when I saw that movie when I was 12 years old on its first run in the theater, where I had my revelation about that guy works in his pajamas. I want that job. That was one of those moments. You know, I think in the end, our lives are, are just sort of a string of those moments, don't you think? And that was a big one for me. Um, but those big arenas, when you can pull them in and make them small and unite the audience and get into that zone, that is super special. That's what for lack of a better label, jam bands have. You know, they can take a room that large and shrink it into a nightclub. And they might have an amazing light show and the best sound system ever. Uh, but that's what we do. And that's amazing. And after 35 years to be able to go to a beautiful place like the Chicago Theater or to a place like the Riverside in Milwaukee, where they just treat you so good and it sounds so good. And the people are right up there in your face. Some of those faces I've been seeing for over 25 years. 
Um, it's amazing. What a gift. And I think uh, we just, we did it on the boards because we just toured and toured and toured. You know, you ask me what I talk about with young bands in the studio. There's a lot of experience that I like to share with them about how do you, important it is. You know, I'm fond of saying this is a business of relationships and you're going to encounter the same people decade after decade. They might all have different jobs than they did when you met them, but we've all got each other's back in this whacked out business if we maintain those relationships. And so for a young band to go out and, you know, you're going to play those places where like, who the fuck booked us in this pizza joint? There's one guy there that you changed his life that night. You make a friend out of that guy. You know, give him a give him a CD or a single or get him on your mailing list somehow. And you do that long enough, and the next thing you know, you got a following. You know, it's like what is it Arlo Guthrie says is <laughs> you get three and you got yourself a conspiracy. <laughs> right, right. To what degree did Phil Walden and Capricorn help? And were any big Phil Walden lessons or stories? Well, the one thing we always wondered was, uh, how come we never saw Phil Walden and James Brown in the same room? Because <laughs> they had the same kind of charisma to us. But Phil was a great mentor. I mean, his son, Phil Walden Jr., was our first manager. He saw us playing a frat party that he was a member of the frat. It was Phi Delta Theta, I think, at UGA. And uh, he's like, you know, my daddy's in the music business and uh Maybe he'd like to hear you guys. And, you know, he was. He was reassembling Capricorn at the time, and Phil Jr. managed us. And I remember we played a place called Elliston Square. It was a rock club in Nashville. And uh, we invited Phil Walden to come see us play, and no one was there except for <laughs> Phil Walden <laughs> and a couple of uh, the guys from REM there in Nashville trying to make their third record. And some of the guys from Jason and the Scorchers. And we played our set as best we could. And we sat down with Phil and we said, uh, hey, you know, what did you think? And he just looked at us and said, it's a big country, boys. Which was like, oh, but he was right. You know, what he was telling us was get out there and work. And it is a big country. There's a lot of opportunity to learn how to be a band, seeing this big country and gathering fans. And then. When we made Space Wrangler and it went indie gold, it was on Landslide Records, and it sold a surprising number of copies and cemented us as a viable touring force. That's when they came after us. Um, Phil signed us and put us with Johnny Sandlin and just let us do our thing. He let us do our thing. There were great lessons uh, but most of them really didn't apply to us. One of the best ones was, uh, what did he say? Uh, well, we we were asking about the label's involvement in the Carter campaign. And his comment was, well, we put a peanut farmer in the White House, record company out of business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's the status of the GMBM world today? It is continually evolving. Um you know, I, I've always said that I hate labels. I think they're more convenient for, for people who have a product to sell. If they can put a label on a cubby hole in a shelf and put your product on it. Um, so jam band was never one that I thought applied. It's, it's 
the state of the jam band world is there are the the original jam bands are they're gone now for the most part. The Almond Brothers gone, Dead and Company still kind of doing it. In fact, doing it really well in some respects, bringing in the young people and getting him onto it. But there's a whole scene. There's the jam grass scene. And I don't know if Billy Strings is part of that or not, but uh, bands like String Cheese would certainly qualify as they started out of the jam grass. There's the sort of live tronica jam bands. Uh, you wrote about Sound Tribe, Sector 9. They were actually on Landslide Records too. They were a former Athens band. They're doing amazing things. There's a, a new band called Goose that I'm hearing a lot about that, uh, you know, they can play, they're writing songs. Um, to me, you know, it's, why isn't Led Zeppelin a jam band? Didn't they do improvisational jams? Well, well, let's do the, the jam band. Let's forget the term. Let's just say there are a certain number of bands that, A, are bands, because most everybody else is a solo act, and they're doing it in their bedroom. B, or C, depending, uh, is guitar is not the dominant sound in the dominant recording world. So what do we know? If you look at the uh, the road revenues, the biggest numbers are pulled by the classic rock acts. Some of them only have a few years left before they're going to be too old to play. Okay. Then we have the Spotify world, the top 40 radio world, which is hip hop and pop. And it very rarely intersects with guitar based band music. Ed Sheeran kind of bridges that gap, but almost no one else does. So as we march forward, what's the evolution? What do we know? In hip hop, it's really about who your friends are. I'll be on your record. You'll be on mine. And we've now seen, unfortunately, with Astro World and a lot of other things, that they can actually sell tickets, although a lot of people cannot. They'll have a big top 40 song. So Adele comes in. At this point, it's a force of nature. But before it became this force of nature, she's doing something completely different and being more successful than anybody else. It's not that different if you plug her back into the 70s. But for today, it's very different. So... On some level, there's a band world, a guitar world that is very healthy live, but it doesn't dominate in any other way. What's going to happen as it plays out in the future? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I try not to concern myself with it, and maybe it's just because my own band and my experience in Widespread Panic, uh, you know, I don't. I think we're we're never going to dominate charts. I just don't think it works that way, and I'm not sure what the value of there's so many charts. What do they even mean? Um, I think it's about. But but, but let's talk mindshare. Mindshare. That's what I was going to get to. The people. I think it's the people and the music they want to hear. Um, why are the Beatles still popular? Sure, there's a segment of younger people that are like, oh God, that's what my grandfather listened to. Can't stand it. But there are other younger people. I was talking to a 12-year-old young lady the other day that's like, I like the Beatles, but she also likes the fruit bats. And I think that there is always going to be a segment of society that listens to music for the joy it gives them. Um, And no matter what it is, for some people, that's guitar-based songwriting music. Uh, The predominant thing is obviously hip-hop. Adele is amazing. But... uh, what was it you said the other day, uh, the, the the demographic that buys an Adele vinyl? Right. You know, um, 
I don't know where it's headed. It is so fractioned out now um, and so heavily curated. Uh, I feel like I I miss the days of the gatekeepers, and we're sort of into this world of tyranny of choice. So it's hard to find something to listen to without a mentor. I mean, I know how important that guy at Gary's Records and Tapes in Richmond, Virginia was to me when he said, are you sure you want to buy that status quo record? Because uh, why don't you try on this Ramones record? And if you don't like it, you can bring it back and I'll give you back your money. That guy was super important to me. I don't know if I ever would have discovered the Ramones at that early of an age. Uh, there's a cultural phenomenon of of hip hop. Uh, Adele is absolutely amazing. Amazing voice, amazing career. Taylor Swift, you know, it's music. I like all kinds of stuff. You know, whatever it is I'm personally seeking, I'm going to try to find any way I can. It's hard these days. There's a lot to sort through. Um, and I don't even really trust the curated playlists. But, I, you know, here's a funny thing. In the Beatles documentary, we see them passing around that Fender Bass 6 guitar. Yeah. And I'm like watching John Lennon play. I'm like, oh, that's, that's great. I always kind of wanted one of those. And we've been graciously working with Fender who's donated instruments to the Neil Casal Music Foundation. And I write the guys and I'm like, hey, you guys making those bass sixes anymore, you know? And and the response, the first thing they said was, after that documentary, we damn well ought to be. <laughs> you know, people are like, but Squire still makes them. The custom shop will make them. And the guy's like, I, I would surely hope that we would put it into production. Apparently, this documentary is having an effect on people. Um, and, you know, you're very, I've read time and time again, and I agree, you know, the Beatles came to America and everybody suddenly bought an electric guitar and it began. This thing that we grew up in began. And I don't know, you know, like I said, it was so important to me watching Sir Paul strumming that Hofner and the seeds of Get Back are, are coming out. I'm like, that's, that's a guitar. You know, that bass six is a guitar. You could tune it, play it like a baritone guitar. Uh, or you can pick up an acoustic guitar. That's where people start. Piano, acoustic guitar. I don't know what the future holds, but, and I don't know there will ever be something as important as a Rolling Stones or a Beatles or a Bob Dylan. I think there will be lots of those and there'll be different kinds of those. They'll appeal to certain strata that like a certain type of music, uh, you know. I don't know, Bob. I just, I know that, there is always music that I find that makes me happy. Um, and who knows what's going to explode? Okay, let's go back to something you said earlier, which is a string of peak experiences. There's this woman, Deborah Tannen. I think she's still at the University of Maryland. She's an academic, so she's not a pop psychologist. And she wrote a legendary book 40 years ago called You, don't, you Just Don't Understand Differences in conversation between men and women. And there are a lot of definitive examples that will lay this out. But one thing she said has always stuck with me. With women, it's about all these experiences, et cetera, where men want a constant upward movement. They want to get to a destination. What do we know really since the explosion of social media, Spotify, et cetera, in the last 10 years? The top has been blown apart. The top used to be very narrow. So I'm sure you had goals. Wow, I'm a, I play this venue. 
Okay, I'm on late night TV. I got reviewed in this paper. I'm getting closer to the mental target. Then they, the target doesn't exist anymore. That's right. Okay, <laughs> you know? So, you know, how does this affect you? It kind of hooks back into an earlier question in terms of what you're doing. To what degree can you go along and say, well, I'm just doing what I'm doing, having fun? Or to what degree in the back of your mind do you have a goal or want to have a goal and want to feel that you're progressing to something? Well, you know, that's a question that's really difficult to answer. And the only way that I can think to answer it honestly is to frame it in age and how, and I absolutely agree with, with Miss Tannen. Uh, there was a goal and it was sort of elusive, but it was, it came in steps. You know, for me, my first goal was I sure would be happy if I could pay my share of the long distance phone bill. Hey kids, remember the long distance bill? And then it was, I sure would be happy if I could not have to have these roommates and have my own place. Wow. I sure would like to buy a car. I sure would like to buy a new car. Every, it was more like life type goals. Uh, the band was so entrenched in doing what we did that, you know, we didn't really get a rest until after Mike Hauser died in the year 2002. We had already, uh, you know, we'd achieved so many goals, but we didn't ever stop to look back. And we celebrated our 25th anniversary uh, geez, 10 years ago or whenever it was. And um, that was really the first chance that I sort of had to cast back. Um, and I'm being honest here, doing interviews for the, you know, it was like, that was the angle. So you guys are 25 years old now. And I'll be like, gosh, that's bone jarring. That's, that's as Hunter Thompson would call, that's some meat hook reality right there. And uh, so then I allowed myself the chance to look back. Um, you know, John Bell, our, our singer would often say, I'm too busy working on the present and the future of widespread panic to concern myself with the past. And I think that that's, that's apropos for me, but to place it, the, my goals change as I age and, and literally that desperation to chase something, some elusive, uh, you know, watermark, a watershed moment of, wow, we sold out Madison Square Garden, you know, or we just played, you know, our 60th sold out show at Red Rocks. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of, um, it's weird. You know, who, who has a career like this? Who gets to still go out and play? I'm about to turn 57 years old. Um, who gets to go out and do something different every night? I do. I'm in widespread panic, and it's amazing to me. Uh, we've worked long and hard. So, yeah, with the top being blown off, as you say, and my goal really is just to keep gathering experiences and learning. Um, I love talking about it. You know, I love it helps me put it in perspective. When you ask me a good question, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, do I need a goal? Maybe I should think about it. What can I do? Like I said, I, I'd love to win a Grammy. It would make my mom happy. You know, it's, I remember going to see a World Series game at Bill Barry's house, the drummer for REM, and in his man cave, and uh, he had a little half bath. And I went in there to use the restroom, and lining the floorboard of the entire bathroom around the toilet were all those little MTV Spaceman statuettes and then he had three grammys sitting on the reservoir of the toilet <laughs> and i'm not sure what that meant 
if there is anything other, or maybe it's like, I've got so many of these darn things. This is the only place to store them. But, you know, I'd be happy. My mom would be happy. She could brag to her bridge friends about her son. And that makes me happy. I like making other people happy. I think if I can help people put their music into the world and it provides even just a modicum of the joy that music has given me in my life, then I'm doing something good. You know, I don't mean to sound as if I'm giving this stuff away, you know, or, but it really, at my age, with everything I've done, it feels better than anything. And on that note, I could literally talk to you all day because you're a thinker. And you stimulate me, and that's what I'm looking for in conversation. We'll have to do this again sometime. There's so many other things we didn't even touch on. But Dave, thanks so much for appearing here today. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsex. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.